This is CliffCentral.com. A warm welcome to Global Leadership Platform on a very cold morning, actually. Uh, multiplying leaders, moving society. That's what we try and do on this weekly Leadership Masterclass show. It's wonderful to be with you, Adrian Grunewald. As always, with me today, the old man, Louis Grunewald. Uh, Roger Sitole couldn't be here. He's undergone an operation. But old man, good to have you with us. It's good once again to be with you. Bring some wisdom and some sanity to our crazy conversations on the platform sometimes. Uh, we're excited to place this content on our global leadership platform app. And uh, soon it'll go public and all of you can make use of that. Um, today our leadership masterclass for the next 55 minutes or so. Very interesting guest. Uh, certainly at the forefront of, I don't know, building the economy, uh, building the future. Uh, Ian Russell, the CEO of BCX. Ian, it's good to have you with us on the leadership platform. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Yeah, today mostly leadership conversation, but before we get there, a quick introduction. I, I, I just saw something interesting. Uh, you've had a lot of um, chief positions in your life. It's interesting. I didn't think there were the, all those chief um, – uh, I can't think of some of them, but the one that I saw recently was CEO and acting chief revenue officer. Now, I, excuse my ignorance, but is that CF financial or, mark, or marketing? But what does that represent in the old language? I mean, I think this whole transition towards the chief language is a, yeah. uh, an American or, uh, originated um, set of terms. Chief revenue officer in the States would refer to a role which drives the revenue of a business. So actually really yeah. understanding the sales and marketing machine. But it also tends to imply profit and loss ownership as well. So not just being a sales guy, but somebody who really understands the business. And that's what we're trying to do in BCX is make sure that the revenue team understand the levers they are pulling to drive sustainable, profitable revenue. Okay, so it's not a, a simple replacement of the marketing director or the sales director. It's, it's a little bit more focused. A lot, a lot deeper than that and mm. a lot more meaningful. Yeah. And it implies you understand the levers that you're pulling in your business in a much more material way. Okay. Are you still the chief revenue officer? So we have two key business units within BCX. We have BCX, which focuses on large corporate customers, the large banks, large public sector customers, and so on and so forth. And then we have a brand called Integrate, which focuses on the medium-sized businesses. So we have about 25,000 medium business customers, and we have about 400 large com companies. So Integrate is the brand that services that 25,000 people. And at the moment, we are changing the operating model. And as part of that, I'm looking after that portfolio so I can understand it better yeah. before we start to think about who we're going to ask to lead that division. Fascinating. You, you've moved from assembling wooden crates, I read somewhere, <laughs> to several senior positions at Barclays. Uh, I think you were CIO for Barclays. And then you came to South Africa for obvious reasons. Uh, Telcom, you've been there, which is obviously part of the group. Uh, SAB, Stint, APSA, and now BCX, which you see as your most exciting position so far. And I, I would agree. So wide experience in technical, but certainly leadership at that level. Yes, I guess, as you would say, I've been around the block. Um, yeah. It's quite funny. This morning, I've just actually come back from APSA headquarters down in Johannesburg, CBD. And uh, I first arrived in South Africa at the end of 2004 as we were beginning to look at the acquisition from, of ABSA from a Barclays perspective. And I remember walking into those ABSA towers, uh, a little small group of English guys and girls going in to sort of talk to ABSA about what this might mean for ABSA. And a big part of that conversation was around the transition of the ABSA brand to the Barclays brand. This morning I've been there and the whole place is just a buzz with the fact that the Barclays brand is now being dropped. Correct. And it's becoming ABSA all over again. So I feel like this morning I've kind of come full circle in the last 13 or 14 years.
So, 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 so interesting journey. It must be interesting because you obviously came into APSA from a Barclays angle. Now you walk into in there as a – I guess it's one of your customers. It's one of my somewhere. biggest customers, absolutely. Correct. So you walk yeah. in there now as a CEO of BCX. So sort of interesting – must be – Different angle, interesting angle. And even more so, I mean, one of the earliest big contracts that Business Connection won in about 2005, 2006 was the APSA business, and I gave it to them. Uh And it was one of the key contracts that allowed them to gain scale in the marketplace just as they were sort of really beginning to to become a market player. So to go back in there, uh, ironically, with the CEO of my biggest competitor in those days, 2005, Jonas, who now is my chief revenue officer for BCX, but he was the CEO of Gajima, who was my biggest supplier and I was giving the business to BCX from Gajima. So this small world that we create is actually quite yeah. remarkable. And, and it comes back to be very, very careful how you behave and act. The towards integri- people. Towards no. people and things around you. If you. As long as you have integrity in those actions, those conversations are very comfortable. But if you act in the yeah. wrong way, they're very uncomfortable. I guess all these things you mentioned now are part of the reason why it made sense to make you the CEO of BCX. You look at the customer base, you look at your experience, and gosh, this guy's a natural fit. I don't know about a natural fit, but I'm certainly trying to apply that experience to being able to pull the levers that we have in a large organization like BCX to maximum effect. Yeah. So we're going to have a couple of minutes on leadership. This is the sure. leadership platform, and we're turning into a global leadership platform through our app. But um, after the leadership emphasis, shall I say, we will move on to a little bit more BCX, the industry, and, and the application almost of the leadership. But you've had all these interesting positions in the sort of certain technical area perhaps to some degree and maybe not you you veered away from that but are you a student of leadership you must be of technology and lots of other things business are you a student of leadership i don't think i'm a student of leadership i think i sort of grow up as i go along and i think you learn by doing rather than by studying and you know people often ask so what's your style of leadership and do you want to follow uh, steve jobs would you rather be like larry ellison would you like to be like Margaret Thatcher. I think the reality is that unless you are you, you're not actually going to be an authentic leader. But working out what is you is a process and it's a journey and it's a very interesting yeah. journey that I'm still on. So let's, let's, let's take that angle. If I asked you what statements best describe authentic leadership to you, let's take a couple that you, that you believe in and we take sort of chew on them one by one as a panel with the old man bringing context as well with all his experience. So what would be the first statement that you would throw out there? I think critically, as any leader, you've got to do as you say and say as you do. I think people pick up very, very quickly if there's a gap between the words that you're using and the behaviors that you are demonstrating. And I think for me, authenticity comes from that that very, very simple phrase, do as you say and say as you do. Mm. And the shadow that you cast as a leader is a long one. And people watch that shadow. So, you know, being very, very clear, very, very thoughtful around what you say and then making sure that you honor those commitments is critical. It's a lovely metaphor because as a leader, we see it as being higher up closer to the sun. So you cast a big shadow. And the question is, is that a shadow people want to be in or is it a shadow they don't want to be in? Um, Challenging in today's highly visible world, isn't it? To be what you really say or to do what you say or to say what you do. Um, A lot of leaders are running into a into trouble there uh, in many respects because you know we can think of the Steinoffs and politicians and many others so we, we do come across this statement when you talk authentic leadership old man then um, then that comes out hey 
as an authentic leader. In fact, it came out powerfully last week too, remember, with Grant, the session had with Grant, great leader in his own right. Um, Ian can just mention that ties in very well with the powerful principle Ian mentioned without necessarily saying it's one of his principles when he speaks about, you know, when you uh, effectively don't burn bridges around you because one thing we can be sure in a leader's uh, career is change as well. And you don't know who you have to face and you have to meet around the corner. It's a very important principle. Instead of being contentious, if you have integrity, then, well, you don't have to worry about burning bridges along, along the way, I don't think. I think it's critical that you really say what you mean and that you mean what you say. Hmm. Um, I have a very great good boss. One of his frequent sayings is, better a strong no than a weak yes. Hmm. And it's critical. So if you don't believe in something, you don't agree with something, rather say so. Be very clear about why and manage the problem, not the person. And I think if you do that, then you leave those relationships very intact. People will respect that. I think the weak yes, and then you back away from it and don't honor that commitment, creates a much difficult, much more difficult issue to manage when it comes to integrity and authenticity. Also, it profoundly impacts, in our experience, on self-trust, how you trust yourself that I'm, I say what I mean. Uh, it's a very important principle. And then, of course, uh, this cultivates trust around you to exactly what you're saying. And trust is so critical in the world of, of authentic leadership. Say what you mean. Uh, one would think when you're a CEO of large businesses that they all just say what they mean. But, but actually, what stops a leader from doing that? I mean, often it is to be liked or to not offend or, you know, there's simple things, but yet complex or difficult rather. But simple reasons that stops one from from not saying what you mean. Sure. Creates huge miscommunication and, and misalignment yeah. of perceptions and expectations and all of that. Yeah. But I don't think you can be an authentic leader if you worry too much about what other people think and whether they're going to like you. Agreed. I think to want to be liked as a leader is, is, is a very short road to nowhere. I think to be respected by people is critical. And to be respected for the decisions that you make and how you make those decisions, I think with that comes a lot of the authenticity and the integrity that we're talking about. Yeah. To chase popularity, I, I think, is what politicians need to do sometimes. I don't think it's what business leaders should be doing. Yeah. It was Francois Pinard who we interviewed once, former Springbok captain, who said something about that, that it was a, a mind-blowing breakthrough for him when he realized you can't get everyone to like you. So he said... Um, 50% people like you, 50% don't. And I said to him, but you can probably get almost everyone to respect you. and and um, But only 50% to like you, maybe. But I think it's an important distinction that Ian draws there between politicians. That's why they maybe go wrong often. is because they're in that popularity game rather than just saying what you mean. Um, and now and then we have this great leader that comes along like a Mandela who just says it, says what he means. And even when it's not popular with the masses, he pushes it through because they respect him and because it makes sense. And it may be a difficult path. But thank you for that, Ian. What else describes authentic leadership for you? I think helping people understand that you don't have all the answers. That, that there can be a default position that just assumes because you're the boss, you know the answer. Mm. Uh, and it's not true. 
I mean, how could I? Why would I? I may have some, but actually exposing some of those thinking processes, exposing some of your own vulnerabilities in terms of I'm not sure, becomes a very strong way of helping people come with you down that journey and, of course, advise and guide you. You know, CEOs are not there because they have every answer. They're there to make a balanced judgment call around where we're going to go next. And to do that, you need to get the right input from the team. So I think that's a critical part of it as well, is making sure that you have a balanced view and you're quite comfortable allowing people to see those thought processes and and challenge you around them. That's a powerful point. I like that. Um, uh, uh, Would you agree that if I do create the impression, it's kind of the opposite of what you're saying, that I know everything – uh, maybe I don't initially try that, but people fall into that trap and they treat me likewise and I act accordingly. Then after time, people won't come with open answers or views because he's always got the answers. So why would I engage in open debate and discussion? Even when the leader says, oh, what do you guys think? And you go, oh, well, I might entertain him a little bit, but I'm not going to share my real feelings because he's what he says stands. <laughs> so it changes the whole environment when the leader creates the brand or builds the brand of I know everything. And I know leaders like that at the very top who still have that. Old man, any comments on that one? <clears throat> For sure. Um, I think from our experience, we found that that as soon as a people adopt a know-it-all attitude, it just cuts communication there. It cuts yeah. the relationship. Now, I think in what we're looking for in a good leader, authentic leader, I think you are you are um, rebounding with that exactly is you have confidence in the processes you use to get answers. But that's completely different to saying I have all the answers because you can't be innovative and creative if you say you have, you know, it all. nobody knows it all for sure. It's very interesting. I was a very mediocre student at school, very mediocre, because you read a textbook and your teacher told you what the answer was. Okay. It was the Battle of Hastings. It was 1066. The king did die. You know, you put these two chemicals together, you're going to get that reaction. It's how you're taught at school, broadly. Mm. So I was a very mediocre student. And, and I, cause I didn't necessarily engage with the, the material. You learn by rote and then you play back the answers in an exam. When I got to college, I suddenly found that learning was fun because you were encouraged to debate. You were actually being encouraged by your lecturers and professors to have a proper dialogue where we were actually testing intellectually different ideas and different theories. It was a totally, totally different experience. And Mm. suddenly, I enjoyed learning. And suddenly, I became a reasonably decent student because people were accessing me. And and I'm like that in, in, in business. I'm not a teacher. Okay. I'm not, I'm not a secondary school teacher. I would like to think that I can bring that debate through like a lecturer will be able to at a university, have a robust intellectual conversation, and then make a decision. But the next part of the conversation when it becomes critical is when you make a decision, you make a decision. You don't want to reinvent that decision or reinvent history two or three months later and continue the conversations outside. And I think that's a critical leadership lesson as well. Have the conversations up front. Make them sure they're robust the strong no versus the weak yes be clear that you've tested yourself and others around you in terms of where you're going but when you commit properly commit Mm. because the lack of certainty on a direction kills a business and if you see what we're doing in bcx at the moment we've made two or three very clear bets we've really worked out where we want to go on something like the industrial internet of things as an example which is a complex conversation Mm. i'm not sure we're 100 right but i do know that we need to give the teams and my customers some certainty for the next year or two about where we're going on made a decision and we've made that decision Mm. we will continue to evaluate it for sure and i certainly don't mind admitting i'm wrong that's okay 
business is about taking some risks and some judgment calls and admitting you're wrong is a big part of, of learning and moving on and making sure your business remains relevant for your customers mm. but actually committing as a team around a decision and moving on not trying to reinvent that decision is a very important mm. leadership behavior i want to add if i may i mean i think in any industry if you as a leader have the attitude of i know everything uh, you will run into a brick wall and, and be in deep trouble but in your industry where, I mean, technology is so fast-paced and so uh, you, there's no way that anyone can know everything. It's, it's such an exciting, um, vibrant, ever-changing world that um, you need a CEO up there who says, I've got confidence in the processes that we as a team can get to the answers, but I, no way can I know everything. Anything else? What else describes authentic leadership to you? Some great points so far. Well, I think it comes back to actually once as a team you've committed – around a decision then you've committed around that decision and then being able to make sure that you offer that support and the air cover to your lieutenants that are going to go out and help execute that becomes very important sure you may give them a hard time inside a conference room but when they're out there you absolutely have their back. So they know and they have the confidence that they've got the air cover from me. I know that I can take them into a room, make sure that we're going in the right direction, have that robust challenge. So I think that's also very important because then they can go out, you know, so they can, themselves can stand tall and know that they're going to be okay. They're mm. protected. And I think that's important. So would that be structural support, um, systemic support, uh, emotional support? Mm. All of the above and probably more. I mean, also stakeholder support and support with the customer and so on. I mean, I love spending time with the customers. absolutely love it. Um, and there's no point being in business unless you're there to serve the customers. And I was with one of our large retail customers yesterday for two or three hours with their chairman and their CEO. And I said earlier, I was absent this morning. And you listen to what's going on. You just need to make sure in those meetings that you are very visibly giving support for, for your team in terms of what they're doing and how they're doing it. Uh, and that's very critical to my team. They'll carry that confidence through. They know I've got their back. And I think that's a very important part of, of that authentic leadership dynamic. Arden, can I just emphasize, it stands out as an authentic leadership principle when he says, I love spending time with the customer. There's depth to that that I think people should understand fully because that's where your passion goes. Um, many good leaders are very good administrators, but they avoid the crucial things. In fact, you find when they speak problems, it's a guy at the bottom end of the line that's, that handles the problems. And what you're saying, no, no, you want to be where the most important part, obviously, is with the customer. And often it's the customer that's in trouble where you can create the biggest difference. So there are two very easy, simple examples. But last year we had a, a large logistics company who were in trouble and they are just moving into a business rescue situation and they needed to bring their suppliers in to work out how could they work with their suppliers to turn the situation around. Uh, and I went, uh, and, and it's not a huge customer of ours, but it was an important customer of ours. And I went and I sat down with the, the chairman that had been placed there by the business rescue process and his kind of interim exco. And we worked out two or three different solutions. We migrated them to some different technology solutions that halve their cost of running the business. Uh, and their CIO came to find me earlier this year and just said, without you, we probably couldn't have got there. Now, sure, my revenue from that customer may be smaller, but I've kept a very important business going they didn't need to retrench a lot of people. And I know that customer will come back to me when they start to expand and grow again. 
Now, that for me was really exciting. That's a big part of what we're doing. We're here to enable the lives of our customers. And it's only the customers that pay the 10,000 people's salary inside BCX. No customers, there is no business. So you have to fundamentally understand how you can look after them as best that you can. You make it sound simple, and it is. It's probably not easy, but it's simple. Uh, you just said there, 10,000 employees. That itself takes its toll. You're their leader, and you've got to lead them, and, and yet you make time to go and sit hours at APSO, hours at retail customer. Again, that says something, old man. Um, I'm not sure that every CEO necessarily does that, but you obviously some penny dropped somewhere for you, and maybe it's, yeah, they do pay our salaries, and... <laughs> And but that, it's good. But also informed by, as you said earlier, a lot of my corporate experience, probably 20 years of it, has been on the other side of the table, really managing and buying solutions and services from partners and suppliers. Mm. And I know from that side of the table what I needed. I really needed a commitment from my partner. I wanted somebody that was going to listen and somebody who actually could say to me, you know what, I can't do that. Be honest. So that strong no rather than the weak yes. And so I know what I, I would have wanted. And I'm trying to play that back now. I'm in a different role, and, and I am the partner that needs to deliver services for people. But mm. also the, the expression I worked out is a very important one. This is the beauty about authentic leadership. It's a process. So you have to work it out. And you can't work it out blindly without knowing what the other person's limitations and, and needs are. Yeah. I have a bit of a phrase when I say I, I want to go and give them a good listening to. You know, when you're a mother or father and you've got kids and you need to give your kids a good talking to, you need to do the opposite with customers. You've got to sit down and really give them a good listening to. It's very, very important. And, and never be so arrogant or conceited to think that you have answers for a business that you don't understand. Mm. I'm not a retailer. I'm not a bank. I'm not a hospital. And yet I service all of those customers. That's what they do for a living. Let me, let me find out from them how they work, how they think, listen properly, be thoughtful around it, and then maybe we can help. Maybe we can't, but maybe we can. Look forward to talking more about BCX as well. But what else describes authentic leadership or great leadership for you? Yeah, I mean, I think we, we've covered a, a lot of the big bases. I think how you build sustainable teams around you based on trust is very, very important. And that takes some time. And again, that's a, probably a learning that you come through. But making sure that you have a balance in that team balance of different experiences, different perspectives and different views and an ability within that team, as I said earlier, to be able to have good, robust conversations and, and arguments. But when you leave the room, you go out as a united team. For me, I think unless you can build that team, you remain a, a solo CEO, very exposed and very lonely. If you can build the team, then it's a very different dynamic. Mm. And that trust, man, you break trust so easily, don't you? It takes years of consistent action to build it and one simple little stupid act mindless act and then it's gone one or two principles that to you have worked in building trust within a team something i learned it's an author i forget the author speaks of vulnerability trust professional trust you know where i trust professionally you're a good hr exec but can i make myself vulnerable in front of you and say i don't know what to do yeah please help and know that you'll still be respected. So that vulnerability trust always stands out when we talk about trust. But just some tips on how to create that trust. Yeah, I mean, it's a hard one. I mean, number one, you can't force the pace. You can't force the pace. Trust, trust is earned, which I think is your earlier point. You don't get trust because you have a mandate and a delegation of authority statement to say I'm the boss. Okay. Mm. Um, so trust is earned and it takes time to earn. 
I think, uh, again, it comes back to transparency. So being very clear around how you make decisions and why you do and why you're, you're not supporting, you are supporting a specific direction to so the transparency. I think vulnerability comes through being very comfortable to say, I don't know. I, I think that vulnerability is, is often there. Often being able to share a mistake that you've made in the same space, of course, which and we've all made a lot of those mistakes. So the vulnerability does help, but I think it's more about taking the time, allowing the honest dialogue to happen, and then just following through on that. And it may take a couple of years to follow through on some of the decisions that you make. So it takes time. It takes time, and it is earned. You can't be given trust. It's a couple of things that you mentioned earlier, the earlier points around authentic leadership. If you did those... So if you say, if you mean what you say and say what you mean, that will build the trust. Yes. And some of the other points that you highlighted. I was going to say, Audien, the, the points mentioned up to now, each one of them uh, definitely builds trust, authentic trust. So mm-hmm. in that sense, I think it's like saying this is a trust-building model if you apply the things you mentioned at the beginning, Ian. But the challenge is, particularly when you're running a large organization, so if you take a bank, you know, 20, 30, 40,000 employees, a retailer, 80 to 100,000 employees, you know, even BCX, which is, which is a medium-sized employer with around 10,000 employees, how do you create the repeatability around that trust? Because doing it with the 10 or 12 people who work directly for you is, is obviously very clearly within your sphere of influence. Perhaps doing it with their leadership teams, which may be still only 100 or so people in total, probably is okay. But how do you get away from the multiplier effect into the 10,000 people? That's an awful lot more difficult, and I'm not sure I have an answer to that. What I do know is that the more that you talk to people and the more that you continue to be very clear about what you're trying to achieve and how you're trying to achieve it, the better. I mean, it's very interesting, and when you guys were setting up, we were talking about you haven't been in your studio for a long time, you've been in offices and so on. Well, you, you're not in my office today, you're in a conference room in Joburg. Right? Mm. I don't have an office. Okay. Sounds like uh, Tesla's, yeah. what's his name? Um, Elon, Elon Musk. Musk. Where the problem is, that's where he sets yeah. up his office. So, so why don't I have an office? Because, I mean, two or three things. Number one, and neither do any of my direct reports, by the way. I actually believe if people can see you, then they feel much more able to stop you. If you're at the same coffee machine as the guys and girls who work for you, it's much more easy for them to have a conversation about how crap the coffee is, which may lead into a conversation about some issues we've got on an IT support desk or something, than it is if they're going to have to knock on a glass door somewhere, get around the Rottweiler that you call your PA, who tries to prevent anybody getting close to you, so they can come have a chat with you about the IT service desk. Uh, so it's so being close to the nuts and the bolts of the business and allowing people to actually genuinely interface with you, uh, I think is actually a really important point of what well, I kind of saw that as well. I mean, I, I, on LinkedIn, I just send you a message, follow each other, not actively at all. And I just said, listen, this is what we do. We interview top leaders. Yep. Can we? And you said, that sounds interesting. Yep. Um, here's the right. So again, accessibility there. Yep. Your job is about technology. It's about leadership. It's about finances. It's about sales. It's about customer are you able to say which part uh, obviously you'll tell me you enjoy that, all of that but what part do you love the most I like least the finances can I start there um, I understand you know, that n- <laughs> uh, n- numbers are numbers and like all people in business you need to understand and, uh, and make the numbers work for you but that gives me very little satisfaction the two things that I really enjoy uh, in this role are spending time with the customers and spending time with the folks that work inside BCX who actually do the doing not the people that talk about doing it, but the people who do the doing. I find that by a long way the most rewarding. Yeah. Okay. Two steps back. When you say you don't have an office, yeah. you mean you're never at your office or you don't have a formal 
office. I'm rarely in the office because I don't have any customers in the office. Okay. Mm. So when I go to my, to, to where we are based, which is in Centurion, then I have a desk and that desk moves around from time to time. Okay. And I'll drop my laptop wherever I need to. So there's no physical office there at all, but we have a head office and that's in Centurion. And I go there partly because the occasional customer goes there, but mainly because a lot of our employees are based there. And that's really critical. The rest of the time, my office is my car and I'll be wherever the customer is. So you're literal when you say I don't have an office actually. Yes. You don't have a corner office with a no. big table and no. boardroom next door. And no. There's a bit of a, a tendency towards that scenario, more openness and, and so on. But, but uh, old man, that's just taking it further, isn't it? I mean, I haven't – gee, we've interviewed so many leaders, Ian. I'm trying to think of one that doesn't have an office in essence. And I, it doesn't come to mind immediately. What do you think of that, old man? Well, I mean, come on, offices mind, are nice places. Close your door and bear in <laughs> mind we went through the same process. Artem Lishley is a high-level leadership consultant, which you are with your backing, and you just thought, no, no, wait a bit. That's it's so right now you don't effectively have an office as well. You're very similar to Ian, and we spend the time. Obviously, digital world helps a great deal, but with the customer, and what a difference it makes. It's so expensive, isn't it, Ian, if you don't, don't do it that way? Ultimately, I think you pay a heavy price if you're not customer-oriented. No, exactly. No, exactly. Okay. So there we go, leaders out there. Um, I don't know, close down your office <laughs> or put some people in there that are earning money for the business. or um, but, but be out there, hey? Be, be out, there. out there, but don't just be out there in one place. Because then you just replicate the problem. So you'll still walk to the same place on the same floor every day and pass the same people and go to the same coffee machine. If you physically move where you put your laptop down onto a different floor, into a different place or in a different office, and we have offices all around the countryside, we have to, to service our customers. I have offices in Johannesburg, in Centurion, in Cape Town, in Durban. Then, then by walking to a different desk, past different people, you have different conversations. Yeah. A wisdom there. I saw somewhere you said it's a privilege to look after such an incredible organization at a time when technology is absolutely critical to the rebirth of the South African economy. I want you to expand on that. I mean, the economy is lots of stuff. There's lots of hoo-ha about land, about mining, about um, all the needs that we have. But you're stepping up here and saying um, – Technology is absolutely critical to the rebirth of the South African economy. And, and can I just sort of put my foot in it and say, one thing that I've realized is we live in two economies th- today. The one economy is your old, staid, big, big industries where they struggle to grow 6%, 10%. They're happy if they get double figures. Um, and then you have your new economy type businesses that are growing 20, 30, 40, 50, 100% sometimes, um, which is astounding. So, so our, our country is obviously stuck in the old way of, gee, if we can get 3% growth, we'd be so happy as an economy or 4, 5, 6%. Um, but we've got to change our whole mindset. Just expand on this statement. So I'm an economist by background. Yeah. So I'll put that big disclaimer out first. And when you get two economists in the room, you'll always get three opinions, right? <laughs> so, so just sort of have that as a disclaimer. I mean, a couple of things. There is an undoubted correlation in the modern world 
between the size of the technology sector and the pace of growth of the technology sector in a country and that country's GDP growth. It doesn't matter whether you look at what's happened in the UK or the States, or you want to go to Korea or Japan. The countries with the strongest, largest technology sectors have stronger GDP growth. Okay. If you have strong GDP growth, you broadly tend to have stronger employment growth and a higher economic level of wealth in that country. My, my view, personal view is that our technology sector in this country is relatively underdeveloped compared to many comparable economies. Oh, really? And if we can accelerate the growth of the technology sector, we will in turn stimulate GDP growth. If we stimulate GDP growth, then clearly you, you bring the whole watermark of the economy up. You'll create more employment and over time more wealth for the economy. And I really believe the technology sector is a relatively underdeveloped, underexploited opportunity for us. And I'll give you a very sp a specific and easy example. Mm. We run at the moment a program called We Think Code, which focuses on kids coming out of school occasionally coming out of university who want to become professional coders for a living. So coding is kind of the new term for software engineering, software development, but it tends to imply a much more agile, much faster uh, ability to develop applications mainly, sometimes games and so on and so forth. There's nothing that stops this economy having a really, really strong coding capability where we have app factories here that generate apps that go all the way around the world, whether they're for games, whether they're for productivity on your iPhone. It doesn't really matter. There's nothing that stops us being a global powerhouse except the fact we haven't had that level of education and investment in that type of, of activity. But we've got all the things that we need. We have the raw talent. We have a relatively low cost base compared to, to global capability. We sit on the same time zone, which is very helpful for Europe. We broadly speak a lot of the same languages. There's no reason why we can't really genuinely become a huge global player on those kind of things. We just haven't yet. That's the point. You've got to have a growth mindset around this stuff. We haven't yet. We can get there. So those are the kind of things when I'm talking about how powerful the technology sector could be to, to stimulate not just our own economy, but also think about how we attract foreign direct investments into the skills base that we have here. I mean, Amazon Web Services is a very good example. Amazon Web Services employs hundreds and hundreds of people in Cape Town. And yet Amazon Web Services is not in South Africa. Hmm. Those developers are here because we've got great skills developing solutions and apps for Amazon Web Services, mainly in Europe and the States. So there's nothing stopping us except our own imagination. Yeah, and I'm sure there's more examples like that. Are we on the right direction at least? Just slow? I think we're getting there. I think we are slow. We have uh, some real challenges at two or three different levels. So if you talk to one of my ex-colleagues at SAB Miller, the SAB Miller guys will talk always about their market share as a percentage of something called share of throat. Okay, share of throat. Most industries talk about share of wallet. The beer industry talks about share, share of, of throat. throat. Okay. What goes down on you? What well, goes down the throat. Now, their perspective on this is very interesting. Their competition is the modern spirits providers, gin is the current in thing to be drinking. Their competition is wine. Their competition, uh, to a lesser extent, interestingly, are the other beer companies. Mm. What they're interested in is what share of throat does beer have compared to the other, other alcoholic beverages that you can have. And their view is if they can collectively as an industry get more people to drink, so the size of the throat gets bigger, even if your share of throat stays the same, you make more money. Okay. So it's in the beer industry's interest to get more people to drink alcohol, even if the alcohol isn't beer. 
Does that make sense? Mm. In the same way, the technology sector in South Africa is relatively small still. It's in our interest in BCX to make the size of the sector much bigger. And we can do that through two or three different ways. One is, as I say, becoming a destination for outsourcing and coding development and so on from other countries outside of South Africa. It brings new income to our country. So that increases the, the size of the the market. The other way of doing it, though, is to get more people educated and more people able to understand what technology can do for their business. Yeah. So the more businesses that use technology, the more businesses I have to sell to. So that so that share of, of the market is maybe maybe the same, but the market's going to grow. So a lot of what we're also trying to do is help younger businesses, smaller businesses, get into technology earlier, so they adopt it earlier and they consume more of it. And the more they consume the more I'm going to be able to sell. So it's a self-sustaining, self-fulfilling yeah. prophecy if you get it right. And we're putting a lot of time and education into those skills, but also into stimulating small business. Because I believe if you get small business, technology enabled to start with, then the size of the overall market is going to grow quite quickly over time. A fascinating conversation. I, I just, you know, the word technology, so broad, you know. What, 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 I know it's so basic what I'm going to ask now, but, how do we define that we want the technology sector to grow so that in proportion to that, the GDP and the economy and so on? What are we saying? I mean, are we talking digital, internet of things, um, coding, apps, or just technology is just everything, it seems. You know, my phone, um, uh, technology is part of our lives, whether we like it or not, starting with a phone. Clarify that for me if you can. I mean, as I say, it's so broad. Yeah, and we're probably being deliberately broad around it because I think if you start to self-limit it, it starts to limit the horizon that you're aiming at and your opportunity. So it does, it touches everything. It touches the water that comes out of your tap. It'll touch the way in which you were able to get here today. It'll, it'll absolutely define how you can broadcast, um, what you're recording. Yeah. It touches all of us all the time, um, everywhere. What's interesting for us as a company that makes solutions for other companies, we have a business to business to consumer role, which gets very interesting. And the more we can understand the consumer, the more we can help the businesses that we serve remain relevant for that consumer. So an easy example, again, if you take retail or banking, over the last 10 years, you've seen a massive migration of retail and banking away from the physical establishment of the bank mm. or the physical shop onto an online transaction. It's unlikely now that you go to the bank for anything other than needing to get documents authenticated or to go through a more complex bond kind of arrangement or something was, like that. was stolen or something stupid. Something along those lines. Mm. But 10 years ago, most of us have been in and out of those banking halls the whole time. The more, so, and, and BCX is a massive provider of technology solutions to the banks. But we do everything from providing Wi-Fi in the malls to making sure the apps work for them to making sure the ATM network works or the transactional services work it's huge but the more we can think about what does the customer want in the end the more we can help advise those banks in terms of what they need to invest in to be relevant for their customer base mm. and it's the same for retail the migration out of the store onto the online solutions onto the delivery how do you track the delivery I mean, what's very interesting in South Africa, unlike a couple of other larger economies, is we've begun to totally, totally disintermediate the single largest distribution channel we have in this country. We used to call it the post office. Yeah. But we have actively disintermediated that channel in the yeah. last five or six years because the post office began to struggle to fulfill its obligation to you to robustly and safely deliver something to you on the day it should arrive safely. 
They had a whole series of industrial relation problems. They had some funding issues. They broke the trust. We were talking about trust earlier. And as a consequence, you have now gone outside of the post office to get things delivered. And And then they become irrelevant. And they've become absolutely irrelevant. Mm. And how they get back on a path to relevance will be incredibly difficult. I'm not saying they can't do it, but I think technology is exactly the enabler. Mm. So how can we sit down with people like the post office and say, guys, you know, what's the smart counter look like in the future? You've got 2,000 points of presence, which is a huge number. It's more than most banks have. How can we make that post office point of presence relevant again to the community that it serves? And what can we do across that counter? Now, we can use technology to change a business model which is really struggling into something that could be very different in the future. So those are the kind of things that we can do using this power of technology to reopen GDP growth, reopen the way that the community can actually access services. So, so in, in our space, uh, we, we spent last 15 or so years selling time working with leadership teams one-on-one as a team, you know, sometimes training and leadership consulting sort of space and started writing a lot and always been in the media space, you know, interviewing leaders and, and using the media platform to proclaim the gospel of leadership. But two, three years ago, it struck me, if you're not on the phone, you're going to become irrelevant. And, and now we've been on a three-year path of becoming more digital so that we can go global. And my whole world has changed and been rocked upside down because now I'm daily communicating with developers, coders, I guess, app developers, technology guys. It's now a partner, formal partner, and so on. And, and, and um, it could potentially enable us hugely. But just so, so I understand everything you're saying simply because I've allowed technology, we've allowed technology to start transforming what we're doing. What the heck does BCX do, Ian Russell? I mean, it feels to me like you're everywhere. You're in all big organizations. Could you even define to an idiot, someone who understands technology very limited, what does BCX do? It feels to me like you're everywhere, everything to everyone, all organizations. We're trying not to be all things to all men. Uh, I think that's a, a difficult path. We have at the core of our business connectivity. We have uh, an incredibly pervasive and strong backbone in how we connect things together. So whether it's a voice telephone call, whether it's a data line that allows something else to work, whether it's a, a sensing device in a field, at the core of what we are doing is we are connecting things and people together. That, that's what we really do. Um, and then off the backbone of that connectivity, and connectivity for us, as I say, it's just moving data and it's moving telephone calls and information around. Then to do that, you've got to be very good at two or three things. You've got to be very, very good at actually running a uh, connectivity infrastructure, which we do on, on a huge scale. I mean, we have 160, 170,000 kilometers of fiber in the ground, as an example. I mean, it's an enormous investment just to get that backbone in place. We we then have to have a series of data centers that can manage, manipulate, store, retrieve, distribute that data. Uh, and all of that transmission that happens, whether it's voice or data, tends to go through a data center. So they're the two big things that sit at the core of our business. It's connectivity. But once you've got a connectivity backbone, then you can do lots of other things for businesses. So those are sort of two or three key areas that, that we tend to focus on. We're very good at running um, systems that allow businesses to run. 
And I divide those into two areas. One are things like SAP and Oracle, which allows you to make financial transactions. It allows you to run factories and to order stock. People call those ERP systems. So we're very strong in the ERP world. And they're, they're critical for any business that runs. The second set of systems that we run for most organizations are things like their laptops and desktops and servers. So you'll normally interface your mail through Microsoft or something like that. We run those systems and we often will own and run for you the laptop that you actually access it. So they're two kind of big ecosystems we run for big companies. The, the kind of supply chain finance payments, H, uh, pay, payroll activities, and then the desktop services and, and all the things that run off that. And then we will write and create specific solutions for you. So uh, we will run a, an application that could ma manage a membership for you. So for several of the large political parties, we run their membership processes and their applications and everything else that go around that. But we'll build those on a bespoke basis, depending what what you need. So that's kind of traditionally where mm. BCX has made its money. But in the future, yeah, where are you it gets what, far more interesting. Yes. So we've got to understand how do we take the cash that we're generating from those kind of activities today, from the connectivity, from the data centers, from those big systems for big companies, and reinvest it in the new technologies that we think we're going to be using in a 2025 kind of time horizon. And we've got four or five you know, fairly material bets that we're putting down at the moment. And we're starting up brand new businesses focused on, on those areas. So I mean, two or three easy examples. As you connect more of these devices to the system, as you begin to rely on those devices more and more, and as those devices do more and more things for you, they are receiving and transmitting more and more data. That creates more and more vulnerability for you in terms of the risk profile associated with those systems. So the cybersecurity, the way in which we can contain your information to you, we keep other people out of it, is critical. So we're spending a lot of time, money, and energy investing in, in a pretty material cybersecurity business because we think keeping our customers yeah. safe and secure is absolutely essential. Yeah. So that's a good example where the explosion of technology now creates a new industry, and that new industry is the security of that technology. And in the same way, those devices, those sensors, the loyalty cards you use, the, uh, the access that you go through to Google and so on, all that data has been captured somewhere. And the power of that data becomes quite remarkable. So we've invested a lot of time and money again in creating a data science business okay. that can really take the data, which is just data. Data doesn't help any business, but then creates insights from the data to say, if you stock 10% more ice cream. When the weather forecast says the temperature is going to be two degrees higher in the Western Cape, you're going to sell X percent more ice creams. Mm. That's putting big data, so weather data, together with uh, smaller data, which is the retailer's data about what they've sold, possibly with the data about how cold their fridges are and how they need to order it, to create an insight for the retailer about where they go next and what they stock. So that's data science. So, so data science is a very big area of, of, of investment for us. And then this thing that people like to talk about, the, the Internet of Things, which, which yeah. is a term that in BCX we hate. Okay. Mm. What, what is the next what term? Is it? <laughs> right, yeah. so, so we rather talk about how do we, 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 we talk about the smart application of technology to specific industries. So we already run, run as a good example, a lot of oil and water pipelines. How do we do that? Well, we have sensors along the pipeline that tells you is the pipeline leaking or not? What's the ambient temperature? What's happening in that pipeline that, that a control center can do something about as a consequence of the information? That's static information being brought through, and then somebody in a control room can go and do something about it. 
What gets much more interesting is when the sensors can also do things. Mm. Okay. So at the moment, we're working with three or four different farms looking at smart agriculture. So what if the sensor in the soil doesn't just tell you that the soil needs to be watered? Okay. But it can actually turn the irrigation system on and off at the same time. And what if that sensor was linked to the Google weather maps to tell you when the rain is forecast or not? So rather than turn the irrigation system on 24 minutes before a great big uh, storm comes in, you don't turn it on at all. Right? Correct. So you're marrying big macro data, so weather patterns, what's going to be happening out there, possibly even with the harvest data, to look at the micro data that you've got about the moisture of the soil today and the temperature of the soil, and you're allowing the sensor to start making decisions about whether to turn that irrigation system on or off. Now, that's not science fiction. That's real. And we're doing that on farms today to try and make sure we consume less water or power or whatever we may be looking at. That is the smart application of technology. Yeah, yeah it's fascinating. I mean, I get the impression that, uh, I know this is ridiculous, you don't even have competitors out here. You probably do work inside competitors. <laughs> I don't know. It's such a integrated environment where you have people, smaller um, technology firms, working with and for you, but they also do things that compete with you. It's, it's everything is so mingled up. You know what I'm saying? Um, it, do you do you have a clear competitor who is like BCX, or is everything too mingled up? I don't know. You you. Are, are the mobile companies your competitors? Yeah, but no. But you do work for them. Uh, no, uh, you know, yeah, that's sure. I mean, we're a big supplier to, to a lot of the mobile companies. Yeah. Uh, we run some of their data center work. We may run parts of their network and so on. Correct. So BCX is, is by some way the largest South African technology company. Yeah. Uh, our next nearest customers probably turn over about two-thirds of what we do and have a much narrower range of services than like we are able to offer. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, our, our two nearest competitors are Dimension Data and okay. EOH. Uh, and they turn over, I say, about two-thirds of what we turn over. The, the mobile players play in a much more specific niche at the moment. And, and like us, they're looking for new business development opportunities. The great thing, I think, for South African businesses, there is competition. But a lot of my competition, I don't believe in the future, really comes from the local teams. It really comes from the overseas players. And that's what keeps me awake at night. Mm. So we have some great local competitors. We, we respect them. We work with them day in, day out. And as you say, it's a very closed ecosystem in many respects. And, and I, I think that, that respect is mutual. But what all of us share as a threat is the hyperscale that can be applied from the global players to the South African marketplace. So if you look at the scale and the might of an Amazon Web Services and even the retail giant that sits behind that, you look at the scale and the power of Google, you look at the scale and the power of Microsoft, or 10 cents. We can't access those R&D budgets. We can't access the hyperscale that allows them to deliver at a certain price. And there's an element of competition with them. And we are no doubt at all in our own minds that our competition locally is going to come from the global players rather than worrying about the local landscape. Absolutely. Does that mean you've got to get even bigger? No, I don't think that scale will help us. Like a, so it's not a merger between you and EOH H no, necessarily? Because I, no, I don't think it is. And, and I think it's more about how do we build an analog moat to defend us from the digital onslaught? An analog moat 
to defend us from the digital onslaught. So what do I mean by that? Well, look, two or three things that BCX has got that a Google and Amazon Web Services and Microsoft will really struggle to replicate will be the relationships I've got with my customers. Okay, That's an analog relationship. It's not a digital one. Right? Okay. It's about really understanding where are my big retail customers going? Where are my big local banks going? And they have different dynamics and different challenges. We're not just another economy. We are South Africa, and we are slightly different. So how do we make sure our understanding of the local environment and those local customers is, is one part of that analog mode? I think it's the first thing. I think the second thing to understand is that the things that we run run safely and securely in this country. Mm. Do you want all your data and all of your processes and all of your transactions to be run in Finland, which, by the way, is one of the, where one of the world's largest data centers is being built now, or in Arizona, where another huge one is being built, or in China, where, there, where do you want your data to yeah. be? How safe do you, do you feel? What would you want to trust? Mm. So my absolute belief at the moment is a lot of organizations will say, keep my South African data about my South African customers in South Africa for me. And we do that. We don't take it anywhere. It's here. You can go and touch and feel and look at the data center that runs your cloud solution. And it'll be right where somewhere where you can drive. So I think that analog mode about the, the absolute intrinsic nature of our business being here, being proudly South African, looking after South African companies is actually a big part of, of what we offer. I'm well. sure the guys from overseas would come in with a, a counter argument. For sure. Oh, why uh, would you want to go touch and, and I mean, you know, and, and, and everybody has a price. Sure. Okay? Yeah. And these guys are going to be able to offer economies of scale that I think we are going to struggle with. So the third thing that we've got to be able to do is to make sure that the relevance of our solutions are absolutely relevant for our local environment. So that it really works. So a very good example, again, as of an analog moat that South Africa has is the complexity of our languages. So it may just be that Google are vaguely interested in creating an Afrikaans speaking or a Zulu speaking, but are they really going to cater to 11 or 12 languages? Mm. But we can. Yeah. So we do have, you know, we've got to really be thoughtful about what are some of those USPs, if you like, those, those kind of dif- differentiating yeah. factors that we have as a South African business operating here that makes us a more powerful, incredible proposition for my customers than going to the big hyperscale players. Unfortunately, or fortunately, I mean, unfortunately, we've had some good examples of large organizations in South Africa expanding, but then, what's the word? Contracting again, you know, coming back. <laughs> so, and, th- and that's sad because I can see someone like yourself growing with a discovery into the rest of the world or a Woolworths or a that's how you also expand your scale more and more rather than them saying, okay, we're now big boys. We now ditch BCX. We now go with one of the big international players and that's your opportunity to grow. But we're out of time almost. I want you to just take a minute on this old man. You want to jump in and just say, what should be the attitude of CEOs, leaders out there towards technology? I think most of them are by necessity changing their attitude, but, but still, I mean, technology is not Twitter. I know, but they stay off Twitter. They stay off social media. Um, they're not that connected as they necessarily should be. So in a broad sense, your attitude towards technology should be the following Mr. or Mrs. CEO. Otherwise, you're in trouble. I think for any CEO of any large organization, staying in touch with your future customers and your future employees is really important. And future customers and future employees are probably still at school. How can you make sure that you start to access how those people think and feel about your products now Mm. so that you are ready for them when they have the economic power to either join your workforce or join your customer base? 
So the more, so I, I talked earlier about the coding programs we're running. Now the age group there is very, very low. It's the 18, 19, 20 year olds. They really get technology. Mm. The more I can learn and think about how they perceive this, the more we can get ourselves future ready. I think the more that we just continue to service the older customers that we have, the people that think that business will carry on the way it's always carried on, the less prepared we are going to be for the next five to ten years. Fascinating. Ian Russell, CEO of BCX. Old man, you want to give a final summary that you've been taking notes? Uh, maybe we went on a tangent with technology, but I think it's so relevant for leaders. Uh, I just enjoyed that part of the course my mind is also going to the technology space no, Ian, um, Ian, fascinating from yeah, leadership sure. to technology and the need for leaders to to, yeah. to see that now Ian's explanation of the vision was exciting yeah uh, but the term he uses become future ready it's really a purely a leadership thing of which technology plays a vital role and we thank you for that uh, to us it's all leadership as well but if leadership does not in, uh, penetrate technology then it's not authentic leadership Ian Russell, CEO of BCX, thank you so much for joining us, taking an hour out of your schedule, and uh, we look forward to sharing this with the world. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. That's our Leadership Masterclass for today. Um, fascinating conversation. Look forward to being with you again next week. And uh, we've got a couple of fantastic leaders lined up for the next few Leadership Masterclasses. So uh, do join us next week again. It's us signing off. Thanks for joining us. Cheers, everyone. This is CliffCentral.com.